happening, Hume Lake? You guys are looking good. You doing all right? You made it through your, through your first full day. You feeling okay? Be, oh, that's cool. Nice work. Uh, be honest with you. How many of you, uh, how many of you feel like you probably met the person you're going to marry today? Is that a couple of you? Yeah? Yeah? This guy? No? Yes? All right. There's a couple. There's a, this guy did? All right. It's mostly guys. Mostly guys. Mostly guys think they met the person they're going to marry. So ladies, look out. That's all I'm saying. Be careful. Well, thanks to those of you who came up and said hey to me. Again, I'll be out and hanging around, so feel free to come by with your questions. Hey, I should mention to you, too, as we begin, uh, tomorrow, you'll see on your schedule tomorrow at 4 o'clock, uh, I, th I think it's in Memorial, there's an there's optional seminar. I'm not at all suggesting that you need to stop swimming in the lake or do whatever, but what, here's what I'm going to do for that seminar. Instead of a teaching like I'm doing here in our main sessions, tomorrow I'm just going to hang out at Memorial and I'm, I'll be available to answer. We'll kind of do a Q&A. So if you've got things you want to kick around, you want to talk about, uh, then you can come to that deal and we'll do it all together. But uh, we'll, we'll, I'll just be kind of available to answer questions for a little while tomorrow. If that's interesting to you, then hi, there's a cute little baby in the front row. That's fun. What a nice surprise. Watch how fast I can put that baby to sleep. Let's see. Uh, all right, so here's the thing. I mean, I do fine with older people. I'm sure I can put babies to sleep too. Here's the thing. We're talking about truth, right? So this morning we're setting it all up and, uh, and we're talking about the truth of God. We're talking about the fact that God created everything we know and that more and more in our world we feel like there's nothing we can stand on. Who can you trust? Who can you believe? What, what, do, you, what do you establish your life around? And we, we talked about the idea that Jesus comes because God wants you to know him. He doesn't want you to live an unstable life. He doesn't want you to have no anchor. He doesn't want you to have no North Star. He wants you to have a sense of who you are and who he created you to be and why the universe exists and more importantly, who he is, right? He wants you to know these things so that you can understand the nature of existence, the nature of the world, right? That everything can be anchored in the truth of who he is. And yet we talked this morning about the fact that God is so big, that God is so powerful, that he's so other than us, that it's incomprehensible for us to think we will ever fully comprehend who God is. And so God does us a favor in sending his son Jesus, who is a very basic interpretation or a simple interpretation of a very complex and, and impossible to comprehend reality of who God is. We can look at Jesus, and like it says in John 1.18, though no one has ever seen God, Jesus makes him known. We look at Jesus and we go, oh, I get it. God is loving, God is sacrificial, God is kind, God is hopeful, God is gracious, God is a servant, God, God cares about the needs of people on the fringes and the margins. Like, what is God like? Jesus articulates that to us. And so, tonight, we're going to take a next step, and you kind of pick up on this even out of Megan's, uh, Megan's spoken word there. We're going to talk about the truth of Scripture tonight. Truth of Scripture. And I want, to be, I want to be really careful with this as we kind of walk through it. We talked this morning about the fact that in John 1.1, Jesus is referred to as the Word, right? Jesus is referred to as the Word. And I mentioned briefly this morning that the way that's translated in the Greek, the word there for word is logos. And what he's doing, what John is doing as he's trying to show us why we should believe in Jesus is he's making a contrast between John 1 and Genesis 1, right? So if you go all the way back to the beginning of creation in Genesis 1, God speaks and things come into existence, right? God speaks and there is light and there is day and there are 
bushes and trees. God speaks and there are animals. God speaks and we exist, right? God's speech is where the power is. So in John 1.1, as John is thinking about articulating to us the truth of who Jesus is so that we will know him and believe in him, he begins with this idea of God's powerful speech, because that's the way the whole Bible began in Genesis 1. God's powerful speech. He speaks and things come into existence. Now, he says God's logos or God's word became flesh. That's what John 1 says. It's talking about Jesus being the articulation of God, the powerful speech of God. But what's peculiar about that maybe initially is that if I were just to get up uh, uh, with no context and I were to say, hey, how many of you like God's word? You would immediately think I'm talking about the Bible, right? Because most of the time when we talk about God's word, we're talking about that book, 66 books inside one book, right? Genesis through Revelation. When we talk about God's word, we're usually talking about the Bible. And, and it isn't wrong that the Bible is God's word. In fact, we heard some of this in what was just relayed. But let me just give you a little context for what we believe about the Bible based on what the Bible says about itself. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it teaches that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man or the woman of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, right? That all of the scripture, what we have in the Bible is God-breathed. What that means is that he is the originator of it. He's the author of it. And if we believe that truth is what accords with reality, God created reality, God, as we talked about this morning, can't lie, but more important, it's not just that God is truthful, it's that he himself is the truth, he establishes what is real, then when the Bible tells us that its pages are God-breathed, what it's saying to us is that we can trust it, that God is the author of the Bible. It is God-breathed. It came through human authors, but God is the architect. It came in different time periods, in different cultural contexts. But not only is it God-breathed, we believe it's inspired. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. We believe that, that the Bible is not just a bunch of musings by human writers who decided they wanted to put some things down, but we believe these human writers were inspired by the Holy Spirit, that God led them, as it says here in Peter, that God led them to write down the things that God inspired them to write. So when we talk about the book, God's word, the book, the Bible, we talk about it being God-breathed. We talk about it being inspired. And because God is perfect and he cannot lie, we talk about it being inerrant. That's a weird word, but it just means we don't believe there are any errors in the Bible, right? We believe it's inspired. We believe it's inerrant. We believe it's authoritative. We also believe that the Bible is sufficient or that it's complete, right? We look at a passage like uh, Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5, that says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. There is clarity in the idea that what God has said is complete. It's enough. What God has given to us, even though sometimes we wish there was more, or sometimes we wish he'd been a little bit clearer about particular things, what God has given us is what we need in order to accomplish his goal. And we talked this morning, and I'm going to be saying it all week, the goal is that we would know him. God wants to reveal himself to you and to me. He wants us to know who he is so that our lives can be oriented around the truth and not around the whims and opinions and preferences of human beings who are all broken. 
So God has given us the scriptures, right? And all throughout time, there have been people who've organized themselves and their lives around sacred writings. We can see that here in, in John 1, which we're looking at tonight. But we do this. We organize our lives around what we believe. Whether you, whether you recognize it or not, what you believe will work its way out in what you do. I was flying from, uh, I was flying, flying from L.A. to uh, going up to Spokane, Washington. I was going to teach at a conference up there. And so I was flying to Seattle, and then I had a little layover in Seattle. I was going to be flying on to uh, Spokane. And I got to Seattle. And when I got to Seattle, they came over the loudspeaker, and they said, hey, we're really sorry to tell you, but we're having just a little bit of mechanical problem with the plane that's going to Spokane. So there's going to be an hour delay, right? So I'm in the Seattle airport. I go and get a sandwich. I come back. I sit. I'm looking through the glass at the Seattle airport. I can see the plane I'm going to be flying on. And it's not like a giant plane. It's like one of those smaller planes with the propellers, right? Not too many people on it. But it doesn't seem like they've got a little mechanical problem. Literally, they've taken the cover off of the engine, and there are like two or three mechanics who are like pulling cables out, and they're like banging it with stuff. And I, as I'm sitting there eating my sandwich, I'm thinking like, something is massively wrong with the engine on this plane. You know, like this doesn't feel great. And so I'm watching them for a while. They come back over the loudspeaker after an hour and they're like, ladies and gentlemen, we're really sorry to tell you this, but the, the problem we're having mechanically is going to take a little bit longer to fix than we thought. So it's actually going to be a, a, a four hour delay. So it's another four hours. We'll give you food vouchers and whatever. I'm sitting there. They end up taking the compartment off the other engine. They're pulling cables out of that. Nobody seems like they know what they're doing. And the longer I sit there, the more terrified I become. You know what I'm talking about? Because we've all heard stories about people who like got a premonition or whatever. They felt like they shouldn't get on the plane, and then they do, and then the plane crashes or whatever. So I'm sitting in the Seattle airport, and I'm thinking like, I'm going to die on this plane. Like, it's going to go down. They, they clearly don't know how to fix it. They're working on both engines. Like, I don't know exactly what's wrong, but it doesn't seem like a minor thing. I want to see my wife and kids again. I don't even care about Spokane, to be honest with you. Like, I don't know why I decided to go there. I'm kind of stressing out, right? But after five hours, they finally say to, they, like, I, to be honest with you, there was never a point where I felt like the mechanics, like, high-fived each other. Like, oh, we did it. They just kind of went, like... And they close it up, you know, eh, this will probably be fine. They go off to their breaks or whatever. They load us onto the plane, and you guys, my heart is beating fast. I can feel myself sweating. I'm like gripping the seat, like the armrest on the seat. I'm so terrified to fly on this plane, which I'm convinced is not mechanically airworthy, you know. And then the craziest thing happens. The stewardess comes up front, and she goes, uh, ladies and gentlemen, we have a little bit of a problem. You know, because we had this lengthy delay... We had to combine two commuter flights to Spokane tonight. And what that means is, unfortunately, there are some people who are not going to be able to make the connection. She's like, I'd like to introduce you to one of those. I'd like to introduce you to Mrs. Jenkins. And there's this little old lady who comes up, and she goes, this is Mrs. Jenkins. She was supposed to fly to Spokane tonight with her family. This is her family right here in the first two rows. And they all kind of turn around. She's like, but unfortunately, because we double booked, like Mrs. Jenkins can't go with her family to Spokane. So we're wondering, is there anyone on this flight who'd be willing to give up their seat for Mrs. Jenkins. And I'm like, yep, me, I will go. Like I grab my backpack, I'm like, I'm out, right? So I stand up, I get my stuff. When I stand up, the other people on the plane start to clap for me, right? They're like, I can see it in their eyes, like this guy is a hero, he's willing to give up his flight for this little lady. What a beautiful thing. The lady goes, sir, thank you so much for your sacrifice. We're gonna give you a $500 flight voucher, you know? And people are like cheering for me. And in my head, I'm thinking, Mrs. Jenkins is gonna die, you know? <laughs> Like, it's over for her, right? But she's obviously lived like a long and healthy life. At least she's gonna go down with her family, right? But I'm out of here, right? Yes, it will be a fiery ending to her long life, but I'm going back to Seattle, everybody, right? 
And here's the thing, my life, I mean, I'm, this is a story, this is a true story. I'm a pastor of a church, and I was excited about sentencing that old woman to death, right? Like, that's a, something really terrible and tragic about the way my life is organized. Now, look, if you'd asked me before that trip, like, would you give your life up for an old woman? I'd been like, yeah, 100 times out of 100. Of course I would. That's what Jesus would do, right? But the reality of what I might say or the reality of what I might even believe sort of hypothetically gets tested in the crux of real life. And in the crux of real life, what comes out is what, what I actually believe, which is I'm the most important person on the universe, right? I'm the one whose life needs to be protected. I'm the most important thing. And I'm not just saying that about me, and hopefully that's not true of me all the time. That was, a, that was an, I mean, it's a funny story now, but that's kind of an embarrassing moment. It's an embarrassing thing to tell you about myself, except that all of us are like that. All of us have these moments where even though we claim certain things, our lives are ultimately rooted and built upon things that are not truth. Ideas that we are more important than the people sitting next to us that our life somehow has more value or that our ideas have more value than other people who are also created in the, image, in the image of God, who are also created for the very same purpose. People forever have been organizing their lives according to what they believe is truth, including what we see here in the scriptures. In fact, right here in John 1, 19 and following, we see some people who've organized their lives around the scriptures. Just listen to this. John 1, 19, as we continue John chapter 1, it says, this is the testimony of John, that's John the Baptist, when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. And they said, are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. So we got two different groups of people, and both of them have organized their lives around their interpretation of the scripture. The Levites and the priests and the Pharisees are going like, hey, to John the Baptist, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah, born again? Are you the prophet? Are you one of these people we've read about in the Bible? What does that tell us? It tells us that the Levites and the priests and the Pharisees had organized their lives around their understanding of the scripture, so much so that they were waiting for the Messiah to come, and they thought it might have been John the Baptist. John the Baptist is another kind of a person who's organized his life around what he's seen in God's word. He's living as a prophet, pointing the way to Jesus, who is the Messiah, but even in this text, he references and says, I'm not the Messiah, I'm just the one who points the way at the one that Isaiah told us about. Well, what that tells us is that John the Baptist thought of the scriptures as something worth following and obeying and organizing his life around. So for us, living in 2022, when we talk about the fact that the Bible is God-breathed and that it's inspired and that it's authoritative and that it's sufficient, that it doesn't have any errors, there's a part of us that says, yes, absolutely, we should be organizing our lives around the truth of the scripture. But we want to be careful as well. Because as we looked at this morning in John chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, Jesus came to his own and they did not receive him. The priests and the Levites and the Pharisees who had organized their lives around what they considered to be the sacred scriptures didn't recognize Jesus and in fact they wanted to have Jesus killed. So it's possible to be so confident in your own interpretation that you miss the actual truth of what the scriptures say. And so here's, this is an important principle I want you to get. We affirm and believe that the Bible is without error, 
that the Bible is inspired by God, that it's authored by God, it's God-breathed and inspired by Him, that it's authoritative and sufficient. But we do not endorse the idea that human interpreters are all infallible, right? In fact, we would endorse the fact that all human interpreters have their flaws. They make mistakes, they get it wrong. I get it wrong, and so will you sometimes, right? So what's important is not so much being uh, convinced of your own interpretation, but recognizing that the scriptures, authoritative, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, the scriptures have one function, and their function is to point us to Jesus, who is infallible, who is perfect in every way, who is the truth, not just a truth, not just speaking the truth, but Jesus who is the way, the life, and the truth. The Bible is valuable insofar as it points us to Christ because he is the truth. The word of God points to the word of God. Interestingly, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about Jesus, we can look at Hebrews chapter one. In Hebrews chapter one, it says long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to, spoke to our fathers through the prophets but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world, right? He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Why did Jesus come? Remember what he tells Pilate? This morning we looked at it. He says, I've come to bear witness to the truth, the truth of who God is, right? Here in Hebrews chapter one, it says, look, God's spoken to us through a variety of means in the past. He's spoken to us through prophets. Sometimes he speaks to us through donkeys. He's spoken to us through angels. He speaks to us through all kinds of different things. But now, the writer of the Hebrews says, he's spoken to us through his son. What's the writer of the Hebrews saying? He's saying there is no clearer articulation. God will never be more clear about the truth of who he is than he has been in Jesus. You wanna know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. That's why Jesus came. And the scriptures, authoritative, God breathed, inspired all of those things, they serve to point us to Jesus. In fact, the overarching story of the Bible, right? I know the Bible is full of lots of little stories, but the overarching story of the Bible is actually really easy to understand. You might never have read Leviticus. You might never have read, you know, Second Peter or whatever. Can I tell you, it is possible right now for you to understand the overarching story of the Bible. Can I t I'll just tell it to you. It's really easy. The overarching story of the Bible is this. God created us for wholeness or shalom, wellness with him, oneness with God, right? Oneness between God and man between God and man and his fellow man, and I'm not saying that in a gender-specific way, I'm saying man and woman, right? In the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, man and woman are existing in shalom, in wholeness, in wellness, and in peace, and they're also existing in communion and wholeness with God. And not only in communion with God and one another, they're existing in wholeness and wellness with the created order as well. The plants and the animals and the sky and the water and the trees and all the th created things were in harmony and wholeness. We get to Genesis 3, and here's the second part of the story. We get to Genesis 3, and sin enters the picture. So the big overarching story of the Bible is that we, as a people, have gone from wholeness with God and one another and creation to brokenness and otherness. Brokenness and otherness, right? Sin enters the picture, and when sin enters the picture, what do we see? We saw it in the, in the drama that was here on stage last night with the, with the fruit, Sin enters the picture, and, and we're driven by our own selfishness. We're driven by our pride. Instead of wholeness between men and women, instead of wholeness between countries, between different factions, between neighbors, family members, instead of wholeness between people and God, now we have brokenness. 
Brokenness between man and God, brokenness between man and man, brokenness between man and God and creation. Everything's coming apart. And you can look from Genesis 4 all the way through the end of the Old Testament, and all you see in those chapters is the struggle to try and get some kind of wholeness out of the brokenness. They establish kings, they find judges, they have, uh, they have prophets, they have all kinds of things that happen in the Old Testament, and all of it is just a story of mankind trying to get wholeness in the midst of the division and the brokenness, right? Then we get to the New Testament, right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the story of Jesus. Jesus comes on the scene, and we'll talk about this more this week, but Jesus comes and he takes the sin of the world upon himself. He dies on the cross and he sheds his blood in order to restore and to redeem the wholeness we had at first. And so what the Bible teaches is that in Christ, and you see this from, from the book of Matthew all the way through the book of Revelation, that we then have the opportunity through the sacrifice of Christ to have oneness again, wholeness and not just wholeness between us and God, wholeness between us and God, wholeness between men and women, all the created beings on the earth, and wholeness between God and man and one another and the creation. That can be restored. The story of the Bible is of wholeness that then gives way to otherness and brokenness. But then in Christ is restored to oneness or wholeness because of his sacrifice. And ultimately, you read the story of Revelation at the very end of the Bible, and what we see there is perfect oneness for eternity. Jesus is victorious, and there's a day coming when we will be restored to wholeness with God. But I, will t I had somebody today at one of the tables, I was sitting out at the table, and somebody today said, why do you believe the Bible's true, though? Like, why do you believe it's true? Asking me, like my opinion, right? Because a lot of times when you ask the question, like, why do we believe the Bible is true? The answer people give is, well, it says so, right? But here's the thing. If you don't believe the Bible is true, you don't care that it says it's true, right? That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense to argue the Bible is true because it says it's true. So why do we believe the Bible is true? Here's my answer, right? And you don't have to like this or trust it or whatever. Can I tell you why, I'm, why I believe the Bible? First, I believe the Bible because the Bible points to Jesus. But I believe, I believe the Bible. Here's why I trust in the Bible. I'm just talking as a human person, right? The Bible is the only the only faith system or the only worldview, it articulates the only faith system and worldview on the planet that aligns with my experience and my observation of the world and myself. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Every other major faith system on the planet, every other major worldview, every other way of looking at the world says, mankind can achieve through his own striving, right? We can do better if we work together, right? Success through you know, hard work and passion, Every major faith system says, you know, you got to work up some karma or you can uh, say enough prayers or walk enough old ladies across the street. If you do enough good deeds, then you can work your way up the ladder. Every major faith system and every major worldview on the planet says that mankind is essentially good and if we're just given enough space, we'll get better and better and better until we have this utopian society. But I'll tell you as a human being who's been living on this planet, who has to look myself in the mirror every day, that isn't true. I look at myself and I look at the world around us and I don't see a society that's getting better and better and better. I don't see less racism. I don't see less sexism. I don't see less judgmentalism. I don't see less hatred. I see more and more and more. And the Bible says, we are broken. Guess what? I look at the world and I look at myself and what I see is brokenness. Every other major faith system, every other major worldview says, we can do it if we're just a little engine that could, you know? You think you can, you think you can, you think you can, you think you can. 
And the Bible says to us, to me, to all of us, we're the little engine that can't, that we can't do it. And so Jesus comes to rescue us. The Bible is the only faith system. It's the only worldview articulated on the planet that says, you and I need a redeemer. We need a savior. We need someone to rescue us because we can't rescue ourselves. And the reason I believe the Bible is because that articulation of the reality of the world matches up with my observation, both of my fellow man, of our societal structures, and my observation and experience of my own inner workings. That, that thing that happened on the flight to Spokane, that's not a guy who's getting better and better. That's a guy who's capable of saying one thing and even teaching one thing and doing another. I'm a broken guy, and so are you. We need a savior. We need a redeemer because we've established our life on things that just are sometimes our opinions or our preferences or our tastes. And what we need is the truth of who Christ is. I believe in the Bible because the Bible tells the story of oneness, which sounds so amazing to me. How beautiful will it be through the death and resurrection of Christ for us all to be one? No more fighting, no more struggle, no more sexism, no more racism, no more injustice, no more murder, right? How incredible will it be for Jesus through his sacrifice to restore us to wholeness and wellness, which is what we were built for? I ache for it, but we're not there today. The Bible tells the story of wholeness to otherness and brokenness and then the ability to have oneness again in Christ. But it requires us to recognize that Jesus is the truth. So circling back to this again, back to this story, when Hebrews 1, when Hebrews 1 says, in the past God has spoken to us through a variety of things, prophets, angels, sometimes he writes on stone tablets or whatever. In the past God's spoken to us a ton of different ways, but now, that but now is important, right? What he's saying is God's spoken in a bunch of different ways, but the clearest God will ever be, he is in Jesus. That Jesus is the centering truth of the universe. I don't know if you've ever been to see an orchestra play, right? You ever go to like uh, classical music concerts or whatever? At the beginning of the orchestra uh, or, or performance of a symphony, uh, if you get there early enough, they, they warm up, right? And you come, you can hear them, they're warm, you know, and it sounds like a cacophony. It's just like a bunch of racket. They're like, whatever. They're doing that, all that stuff. And uh, then at some point, the first oboe will stand up and somebody will rap on the music stand. And the first chair oboe player will play an A, an A on the oboe. And every instrument in the orchestra tunes to the A. Now, the reason the oboe is the instrument they do that for is the oboe is the instrument in the orchestra that is the least susceptible to environmental change, right? Uh, humidity, heat, cold, those things don't affect the oboe's tone. The oboe is the most likely to produce a true A. So the oboe player plays the A, and every other instrument in the symphony orchestra tunes to the A. If they don't do that, listen, if they don't do that, it doesn't matter whether all of the other players play their music perfectly. It doesn't matter how much they've practiced. It doesn't matter how incredible they are at their particular instrument or how long they've been playing it. If they don't tune to the A, they cannot make symphonic music that is beautiful. They can't. Because the tuning is all over the place. It'll just sound like a disaster. Can I tell you, Jesus is the A. He's our A note. He's the oboe's A note. Our lives are meant to tune to Christ.
And the scriptures are valuable. God breathed, inspired, authoritative, sufficient, right? Inerrant, all of those things because they point us to Jesus. There are going to be times when you're studying the scriptures, at least if you're anything like me, there are going to be times when you're studying the scriptures and you're confused or maybe you're frustrated. There are things in the Bible that are frustrating and confusing. There are places in the Bible where the people are clearly broken, right? Not everything Abraham does, you should do. Not everything King David does, you should do. Not everything any of these regular characters do, you should emulate, right? All of them are busted, all of them. Everything Jesus does, you can tune your life to. Everything Jesus says, you can tune your life to, right? He is our A. He is the truth, and the scriptures point us to the truth. Listen, the scriptures, the Bible is not meant to be an instruction manual for your life. That's not what it's meant to be. The Bible is not a book of hidden knowledge. It's not a puzzle book or a code book. It's not, uh, it's not a thing to go through and sort of figure out all the secret numbers and the hidden messages. None of that's there, right? The Bible tells us the story of human history, which is Jesus restoring us to oneness by his death and resurrection. He is the central truth of the universe, and on that truth of Christ, which the scriptures point us to, we can finally find something to organize the world we see around us and to understand what it is we're living in. We're living in a world that is broken, but that can be restored and redeemed by Christ. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament there. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What Jesus is saying there is, I'm the fulfillment of everything that was written before. All of it points to me. I love the, the fact that in Luke chapter 24, verse 27, after Jesus' resurrection, he sits down with these two people who are seeing him resurrected, and he walks them through the scriptures and shows them every place in the Bible that points to him. That's like a college class I'd like to take, right? to sit with Jesus and have him point out all the places where the Bible points to him. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus says to some of the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Listen to what Jesus says, because as we think about the value of the scriptures, I don't want to diminish your, your opinion of the value of the scriptures at all. They are magnificent, and God breathed and authoritative and all those things. But Jesus says to the Pharisees, it is possible for you to know the word super well, thinking that in knowing the word or knowing the scriptures, you can find life, but you're missing the fact that all of those verses point to me, and if you don't come to me, you don't have life, because the scriptures have no life in them. Life is in Christ. Life is our, Jesus is our A, right? We tune our lives to Christ, and it reorients, the light of Jesus reorients everything else about us. God's word points us to the truth because it points us to Christ. Everything that confuses us in the scriptures or in the world or in our own selves can be cleared up by looking at Christ and understanding the work he's come to do to restore us to wholeness. That is our future because of Christ. The brokenness we see in the world will not last forever. And if we will tune our lives to the A, we can see some of that brokenness restored right now in the here and now, in your schools, in your homes, in your families. Not all of it. God's got to do the massive work, right? But in small ways, we can see our neighborhoods redeemed when we tune our lives to Christ. And the scriptures point us in that direction. When, the scariest thing that ever happened to me, um, scariest thing that ever happened to me happened to me when I was in like fourth grade. And uh, I went to bed like any other night. And I hope this doesn't like kind of shake you up. But I went to bed like any other night and I I woke up in the middle of the night and I knew something was weird because um, 
I woke up and I wasn't in my bed, first of all. And also, I have a nightlight in my room as a kid. Don't judge me, but I had a nightlight. And I woke up in a pitch black room. I woke up in a pitch black room. I wasn't on my bed. I was, I was on a cold, hard floor, and I, and I didn't know where I was. I couldn't see my hand in front of my face. And I realized really quickly that someone has taken me out of my bed. I don't know how I got where I am, and I'm just a kid. And then I realized that I'm tied up. And so I, I kind of panic, right? I start to freak out. I'm like... Heart's beating fast. I roll up onto my knees and I crawl just to see where I'm at. And I immediately bang my head into something. So I turn and I go the other way and I bang my head. All four directions. I'm basically in a tight little space. And so I I just assume that I have been taken from my home and I'm in in a box and it's dark. And so I start to scream. I'm calling for my parents. I'm calling for any, the poli- anybody that will help me. I don't know where I am. I'm like terrified that I'm going to die and I don't know what's going to happen to me. And the next thing I remember is a blinding light. And I know that sounds miraculous. It wasn't that miraculous, but there's like this really bright light. And when my eyes adjust, all of a sudden I can see my mom standing over me and she's turned on the light. And I, I realized that I'm in the front bathroom of our house. Um, and I had gone in the middle of the night, I had gone to the bathroom uh, and, and but I hadn't turned on the light. And I, so I'd taken my pants down and I peed and then I just laid down on the floor and went to sleep. So when I woke up, uh, when I woke up, I thought I was tied up, but I just had my underwear wrapped around my ankles. That's all that was. <laughs> I roll up onto my knees and I start to crawl and I bang my head into the bathtub and then I crawl the other way and bang my head into the door and then I turn the other way and bang my head into the toilet, you know? And uh, I thought I was in a box. I thought I was kidnapped. I thought I was gonna die. I thought it was the end of the world. I didn't know what was gonna happen. And I'll tell you, there's a crazy thing that happens. My mom switches on the light and there's a moment where my whole life is reoriented to the truth, right? My whole life is reoriented to the truth because now I know I'm not gonna die. I also realized almost simultaneously that I got my pants down in front of my mom. You know what I'm saying? So that's not a great moment. So there's a little bit of humiliation. There's a little bit of shame that I thought I was going to die, that I've not got my pants up, whatever, that I'm laying on the bathroom floor, that I banged my head into the toilet. All those things are embarrassing. We talked this morning about the fact that as we, as we tune our lives to the A, as, as we realize that God is the truth and Christ reveals that truth in God, The scriptures point to Jesus who reveals the truth. He is the truth. That there will be this moment of pure bliss as you start to understand who you are and how the world is. How does this all work? Why is it like it is? Why is is stuff the way it is? Because your life can all of a sudden be established on the truth, right? All of a sudden I knew I wasn't kidnapped. I knew I was just an idiot fourth grader in the bathroom. But there is also a moment of uncomfortability as our life gets reorganized around the truth. Yes, there's this moment of bliss when you know you're not going to die, but there's also this moment of like, I had it wrong. I didn't get it. I misunderstood it. You know, the unfortunate thing for many of the people that came looking for the Messiah is that they never, ever found him. Some of the Levites and the priests and the Pharisees who knew the scriptures inside and out, they go to John the Baptist and they say, are you him? Are you him? And he says, no, I'm not. Some of those people never find Jesus. And you know why? Because they fell too in love with the things about Jesus and they missed the opportunity to fall in love with Jesus. Life is found in him, he says in John 5, 39. Not in the things that have been written about him. So let's you and I be committed to recognize the beauty and the value of God's word, inspired, God-breathed, right? Authoritative, all those things. But only insofar as they point us to the living truth embodied in Christ. And let's let the truth of who Christ is retune our lives, and not just our lives individually, but retune the symphony of our lives so we're playing Jesus music together.
That's the dream, right? Community, wholeness with God, wholeness with man, wholeness with creation, restored because of Christ. That's where we're headed, because of who he is. Would you pray with me? God, thanks to this group of students. Thanks for uh, the way they're tracking with me and the way they're processing some of these things. They're, they're complex, I know, and there's, um, there are other things to think about just outside the things I'm saying, right? So I'm, I'm praying, God, that you'll give them clarity and uh, excitement and energy to walk down some of the rabbit trails that are produced when we start to talk about what it means to tune our lives to you, to have you flip the switch on the light of our lives and recognize what is real, who we are, what, what this world is, and who you've called us to be, and what wholeness and wellness can look like because of who you are. I pray, God, that there wouldn't be a single student in the room that would be discouraged or embarrassed or frustrated or angry because of the truth, but that instead, God, you would get them excited, that they would recognize again that your grace is a package deal with your truth, that we are loved by you, that we are known by you, that you, you want us to know you. That's the whole point of the incarnation, of you coming, is that we would know you. I pray that the students in this place would get excited about the fact that there's a God in the universe who knows them and loves them and wants them to know him. God, will you stir us up about all that can mean for the lives that lay ahead? We pray that in Christ's name, amen.